Welcome back to the Recalibrate Podcast. This is a podcast coming to you from the Pendell Ministry Network, where our goal is to help support healthy pastors and thriving churches. The goal of the Recalibrate Podcast is to help you recalibrate your leadership and your soul. Today's podcast is on the topic of the trauma-informed minister. This is Paul. Jason is out of town on assignment this week. We're one week out from Summit, and I'm looking forward to connecting with you there. Today's topic is the trauma-informed pastor. And when I was at Texas A&M doing my marriage and family therapy degree for the Army, I remember asking the question to the chair of the department, what is the most important trend emerging in the world of counseling today? Without hesitation, she said, trauma. Then she said, trauma, trauma, trauma. One of the great takeaways from a recently published book, a Christianity Today Book Award winner called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self by Carl Truman, is that we are now living in a psychological world with the rapid secularization that has taken place, especially over the last five to ten years, and the increased replacement of a psychological narrative over the spiritual, more and more people within our Western culture are relating their life to a psychological vocabulary, and one of the most important words being used is trauma. Trauma is an important word when it comes to pastoral care and counseling. Although not a word directly used in the Bible, it is definitely found there. One of the stories that I return to when I think of trauma is after Elijah killed the prophets of Baal. He ran and hid out at the brook Cherith. God fed him food from the ravens. He was running away from Jezebel after he had just gone through a traumatic experience. It was victorious, but it was still traumatic. So what is trauma? There are some important distinctions to make. First, there's a difference between what we call a capital T trauma and a small t trauma. A capital T trauma would be something that someone experiences like we all did on 9-11 in various forms, or a car accident, or uh, perhaps a history of serious abuse within a family. Small t trauma is the accumulation of many different kinds of micro traumas. We can call this the death by a thousand paper cuts. Over time, this accumulation of small t traumas is akin to what we say in the army that they're daisy chained together. They're like small bombs linked together that start to form a negative but cohesive narrative inside oneself. This is called complex trauma. Many times in my work as a trauma therapist, I find that helping people overcome complex trauma is much more difficult than getting healed from one big traumatic event. While I was stationed at Fort Hood, Texas, working on the MFT degree, I belonged to a cohort of eight other family life chaplains in training in one of the therapeutic modalities we were learning was on trauma, and it's one of the most effective ways of treating it. It's called EMDR, short for Eye Movement Desensitization and Reprocessing. That's definitely a mouthful. 
I've treated soldiers and their family members using EMDR, totaling hundreds of hours. One person in an early session said to me, I was screaming into the void for the last four years, and now it's all gone. That's the power of EMDR. Another said to me right in the middle of a session, and he gave me permission to tell his story. Chaplain, do you see this watch on my wrist? It's a $37,000 watch. You know why I'm wearing this watch? With tears rolling down his cheeks, he said, I feel worthless inside. You would never know that he was feeling that way when he walked into my office. He worked in special operations. He was incredibly physically fit, handsome, intelligent. He had a beautiful wife and two daughters. He looked like the total package of success. When he came to me, he had many hard experiences from combat, but what he wanted to talk about with me was his family of origin trauma. It was the foundation of wiring in how he related to other people. No matter what he did, he always felt worthless. You'd never know it looking on the outside. The soldier grew up in a single-parent home, raised only by a mother, and he saw many different men coming into his home. It was a dangerous place to live, and he grew up with experiences that set his wiring in place. There's a saying in trauma therapy, what wires together fires together, and the narrative that was wired together growing up in that unsafe, unpredictable home for that soldier was, he was worthless. Trauma coalesces around a story that we believe about ourselves. It's not a true story in how God sees us, but it's a deeply embedded negative story into our hippocampus where the traumatic story is stored. I like to call this in computer terms a damaged piece of hard drive. When situations in life arise, that feel like overly familiar territory associated with past traumatic experience, we become triggered and begin to act in abnormal kind of ways, heightened emotional ways. In his monumental book on trauma, Basil van der Kolk, The Body Keeps the Score, he says that there are two parts of the brain easily understood in metaphors. The first is the smoke detector, and that is the amygdala. The amygdala is the fight, flight, or freeze survival mechanism in the brain. The smoke detector is there to keep you alive. It tells your body, danger, 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 where there's something potentially life-threatening. And the problem with someone who's had multiple traumas in their life, and they begin acting out from Uh, this hard wiring, it becomes disrupting and disorderly. In severe cases, one would call this uh, PTSD or on a spectrum of PTSD. It is here that the smoke detector is always overriding the other part of the brain that Vanderkoe calls the watchtower. We have the smoke detector and the watchtower. The watchtower is the medial prefrontal cortex, which is located in your forehead area above the eyes. Vanderkolk uses these examples of the healthy cooperation between the smoke detector and the watchtower. If one smells smoke, you don't think that the house is on fire. You recognize 
that you're just smelling the steaks on the grill behind the house. When someone has a trauma-disordered life, they always think the house is on fire when they smell smoke. This is a bit of an extreme example, but you get the point. One further metaphor he uses just to mix it up for educational purposes is that he calls it the horse and the rider. When our mental life is in balance, the rider on the horse is trotting along and everything is okay. However, if the amygdala is triggered and the limbic system is flooded, the horse is out of control and the rider is having a difficult time maintaining balance. There's one more item that needs to be clarified when discussing the two different kinds of trauma, big T, small t. There's also something that looks a lot like trauma, but it's actually something different. It's moral or spiritual injury. I'm going to share the definition of moral injury used by the Veterans Administration. In traumatic or usually stressful circumstances, people may perpetrate fail to prevent or witness events that contradict deeply held moral beliefs and expectations. When someone does something that goes against their beliefs, this is often referred to as an act of commission, and when they fail to do something in line with their beliefs, that is often referred to as an act of omission. So we get this stuff. Individuals may also experience betrayal from leadership, others in positions of power or peers, that can result in adverse outcomes. In order for moral injury to occur, the individual must feel like a transgression occurred, that they or someone else crossed a line with respect to their moral beliefs. As a U.S. Army chaplain, let me give you an example from combat, but uh, you can reflect on your life experiences. In one combat situation, the enemy sent a young, retarded boy to climb over the wall of our outpost. The American soldiers standing guard had no idea who this man was. He was just being used as a tool to find out what kind of security was behind our wall. The enemy sent in this man to test us. When we returned from deployment, I was approached by the young paratrooper who was on duty that day defending our outpost. They had to kill that man. They didn't know if someone was a suicide bomber climbing that wall. The paratrooper had a moral injury. He was in a moral bind that they killed the retarded man who unknowingly was sent to his death. The paratrooper's conscience was violated because he witnessed the unnecessary killing of an innocent man. Moral injury is not a car accident per se. It's a violation of conscience. I did something wrong, or someone else in authority violated the socially acceptable behavioral norm. We could see something like this surrounding the protection of children. It's my hunch that sometimes children who grow up in the church and leave the faith may have done so because of a moral or a spiritual injury. They witnessed or were participatory in something that violated the biblical social conscience. Values didn't line up, and there was such a disorienting experience that it injured their faith. From that experience, what wired together now fires together, 
and a new narrative that they are now living their life by. It's not a true narrative, but one that they feel is the most helpful to their either emotional or physical safety. There can also be a combination of moral injury and traumatic experiences. This is sometimes very difficult to work through as a therapist, and it takes a significant amount of time to differentiate between the two, working on each one separately. So as a minister, what might your approach to the idea of trauma be? Number one, we need to be aware. So when someone is acting outside of a biblical norm and the person is identifying themselves as a Christian, you, you understand them to be that, uh, and they're having an unusually heightened emotional reaction to something uh, in the church, it's probably not you. It's them. They're triggered. Understand that trauma causes one to think in negative scripts or narratives or beliefs about oneself and the world. Their world doesn't seem safe anymore, and they're trying to protect themselves. Three, this broken script just doesn't work for them. It prevents someone from getting where they ultimately want to go. So what can you do? Be patient, supportive, be a non-anxious presence. As much as they will allow, be their shepherd. You may only be able to point the way. Be a safe person to them. When you can provide pastoral care or counseling, this is number four, the direct approach to quoting at someone, quoting scripture, may not be the best. Scripture is absolutely appropriate, though, right? As you shepherd the person with trauma, they're essentially attaching themselves emotionally to you because you are a safe person. It's within the safety of your relationship that you can explore with them the idea where and how God has been with them. Be on the lookout, number five, for those negative scripts, how they see themselves. Listen to scripts and how they talk about themselves. I am fearful. I can't do it. I'm incapable of doing this. No one cares about me. I'm unlovable. It's not safe. Where you can join with them, help them to see where there are opportunities, that there is safety, and how might they want to positively think about themselves instead. You're a resource. So uh, what are some others? When you know it's time to refer, yeah, this is, this is above me, right? I, this, is, this is above my skill set. So are you in touch with any uh, local counselor or therapist? Could it be here at Emerge? Having a handy list of different community resources is helpful if you don't have any already. So I think the most important thing you could do here is to help them find the voice of God in their life. A process that I created similar to EMDR, much different, but anybody could do this through like a journaling exercise. It's all about asking, where is God? 
So before the event that happened, the traumatic event or the accumulation of specific traumatic events, the question is, number one, who were you before this happened? What were the positive things about yourself that you liked, that you enjoyed, that you saw God in yourself that you wanted, you want to keep right now? Who were you during that time? And then who were you during the traumatic experience? How were you reacting? How did you react positively? How did you react negatively? Next, who have you become? Who are you now after the fact? And how can you take, this is the important piece, how can you take the best of who you know you were prior to that traumatic event or those traumatic events, take the best of that character, that Christian character of who you were or who they were before that event and bring it forward who they were during the event, how you or they reacted during the event that was positive, the ways that they reacted negatively, not so much. We, we want to change that, right? And move that forward in the future. And what are the positive things about themselves that they want to keep afterwards? This is a meaning-making process. Who were you before, during, and after? Capture that. Where was God in all of that? Capture that and bring it to the present for the future. For the glory of God. I hope this was helpful as we talk about a little bit about trauma and you as a trauma-informed minister. This concludes this week's Recalibrate podcast to renew your leadership and your soul. Until next time, God's richest blessings to you and our listeners.